This podcast is a publication of the Engineering Management Institute, where we are committed to building professional development systems, including project management and people leadership programs that support the growth of engineers and their firms. Download our AE Industry Trends Report for insights on the great resignation, remote work productivity, and people-centric cultures. To get your copy, visit engineeringmanagementinstitute.org. Welcome to another episode of the Geotechnical Engineering Podcast. Today, we're going to be having a conversation with a very good friend. This is Tom Richards from Nicholson Construction Corporation. We're going to be talking about his several decades of experience as a geotechnical engineer. We're also going to be talking about working platforms. What are they? How are they designed? How are they accounted for? How are they constructed? Things that are challenges as far as what they mean for the industry. We're going to talk about those. So a lot to unpack as you talk about working platforms. We're also going to talk about some advice that he has for younger engineers and consultants and contractors that might be listening in or watching. I'm your host, Jared Green, and I'm excited to be bringing you another episode of the Geotechnical Engineering Podcast. But before we get started with today's episode, we're going to hear a word from our sponsor for today's episode, that being PPI, a Kaplan company. Before we dive in, we'd like to recognize our sponsor for this episode, PPI, a leader in engineering exam prep for the FE and PE exams. PPI provides expert prep courses and study resources designed to help you pass the FE and PE exams the first time. PPI's live online courses include hours of lectures, problem-solving demonstrations, exam strategy sessions, office hours, and a passing guarantee. Check out PPI today at ppi2pass.com to see all the options available for FE and PE exam prep. Now let's dive into today's episode. Tom, how are you doing? Great. How about you, Jared? I'm good. I'm so happy that you found time to carve out for us. I know that you're busy. Tom, it would be great if you could kind of set the stage, tell us a little bit more about you, but I would love it if you did it in the way of talking about some key milestones and experiences that have helped shape you as a geotechnical engineer. And if you want to talk about some standout projects and accomplishments, you could do that as well. And I don't know if I've ever said it, but you've definitely been one of those engineers in the field that I've looked up to. So I'm looking forward to this conversation. So if you could do that for us, that'd be great. I graduated from University of Pittsburgh with a bachelor's degree and, and went to work for a geotech consultant here in Pittsburgh called GAI Consultants. And it was a great training round. When I, and I had the plan that I was going to do that for three years and then do something else. But I didn't really know what that was. But it was great. I got to do site investigation, slope stability analysis, geotech reports, all that stuff. And then when uh, three years was approaching, I met Donald Bruce at a uh, local meeting and said, wow, he's the guy who wrote that rock anchor manual. I'd also tested rock anchors when I was at GAI and thought that was real fun and said, wow, I think maybe Nicholson's the next thing I should do. So I went there in 1988 and was there for 30 and a half years and retired early so my wife and I could enjoy life while we still had the uh, physical abilities. During the Nicholson days, there was all kinds of 
jobs of a lifetime. Probably the first big one was working on stuff on the central artery tunnel. We did a test program and we did a bunch of retaining walls, and anchors, clay anchors with pretty high loads. And that was fun investigating that stuff. Undrained shear strengths of clay investigation. That was fun. And then the next bigger one was uh, Williamsburg Bridge in New York City, where we put in a whole bunch of micro piles and did 30 pile load tests. And that's where I really did most of the pile load tests. I had done them before that too. And probably the next biggest one was Mandalay Bay in Vegas, where we went in and drilled micro piles deeper than any borings had gone. And there's a whole, there's recordings out there of that whole experience that was definitely a project of a lifetime and i've openly said it in all those presentations it was we were going beyond what we knew because we didn't really know what the problem was and so every night i prayed for safety for us and for the guys in the, working in the hotel it was uh, thousands of people working in the hotel building it and then i guess i just kind of got into other stuff, nothing stands out as being a project of a lifetime since then. Got to do more jet grounding later in my career. That was fun. When you think about what it means to be a geotech and, and to have several decades under your belt or whatever you want to call it, there's a lot of stripes, you know, and you start talking about things that you've load tested. And I know that you've written several papers, you've presented. That's why folks like me know you. You've learned a lot, but I think that you've also shared a lot. And I want to say that appreciate that. I really do appreciate that because uh, I think that that, I mean, we learn a lot in our textbooks. We learn a lot when we're in school, we're getting into degree, but I think that there's something to be said about when we're sharing our experiences, the ups and the downs and what we learn in the case histories, it does help the overall practice. So thank you for that. Yeah. Thank you. It's been fun. I like load testing things the most because you have a prediction of what's going to happen and that you get to see how it did. And then you think about what caused that to be like that. And I always like taking things to failure when we're doing a load test, preferably beyond the contract requirement to get paid. Can you explain what working platforms are? And in the context of geotechnical engineering, why are they crucial for various construction projects? So working platforms are the name that we uh, got assigned to the platform you work the equipment on. And frequently it's a layer of gravel on top of poor subgrade. There's lots of jobs where there's decent subgrade and you don't need anything. And there's jobs where you're on a concrete pavement and that helps. And if you put crane mats down, that can help. But the crane mats have a cost associated with them, moving them around. And so the idea is to come up with something that provides a safe working environment. And it gets motivated by the fact that we see way too many overturned rigs. I did a presentation that is on the DFI website, or there's a link on the DFI website that showed a whole bunch of overturned rigs. And it's scary to watch it happen. I've never seen it personally, witnessed it. But to me, my motivation for this being an important topic is that the guys operating those drill rigs are my friends. And then the geotech guys on the job, the inspectors become friends with those guys too. And for any of them, including anyone on the site to get hurt by a rig falling over or yet killed and 
I only know one that was a death, but it doesn't matter. It, there's a risk there. And so we want to reduce that risk and give our guys more support than just saying, hey, we need to make sure this is a good working platform. It was when I first started working. You hear about construction, but you don't really appreciate I didn't grow up in a family that was like construction workers, right? So I didn't really know about construction until I got to construction sites. And I said, man, it's, this is scary stuff what we're around and what we're next to. And I remember the first time being on a project where there was a drill rig, there was so much emphasis on, you know, where to stand and where to be out of harm's way. And it's it's big deal. I have had a tragic loss from, from a former employee. And it was due to an overturning rig. So the work that's being done with, with working platforms, this is serious stuff. So I get it. Well, that's another one. That's not the one I mentioned, and unless you were in Toronto. This is a totally different one in, in the US. It's a big deal. So I was talking to Scott Jacobs a little while ago, and I was saying that, you know, this working platform initiative, this is something that's going to change the industry and it takes all of us. So when you're thinking about your career, you think about examples of projects where using working platforms made a significant difference to project safety. What are the kind of things that come into play there? A lot of my early career, I was working with smaller rigs and they don't put near the stress on the ground. And so other things like concrete slabs that are in there or just temporary cohesion from surface tension can easily make those stable. The center of gravity is not so high that when it falls over, it's not that big a deal. And I've never been on a job where a rig fell over, but we also frequently put crane mats down on, on big equipment, like a big hydrophrase. I can't remember what we did for sure in Boston with the uh, central artery and the soil mixing equipment. Those were big, big rigs. I think it was the combination of the granular fill that already existed over most of the Boston that provided stability, and there was often uh, pavements and all concrete slabs already there. So I've never actually been on one that overturned, but what motivated this for me was we started getting these bigger and bigger rigs and getting into bigger foundation elements. And when we looked at them, we just said, wow, these things are big. And we saw all these other images of them being overturned. And so we started to study it and at least talk about it more, try to put more analytics behind it. You typically don't have a rig involved on in a project that has shallow bedrock and good soil. You typically have a rig on a site because you have to advance through all the crap to get to the good stuff. And so you have this big, heavy piece of machinery that comes to install something in the ground and it's sitting on soil that's not great. They just keep getting bigger and heavier. Bauer keeps coming up with a new 4850. Who knows what's next? They just keep getting bigger. We kind of hinted at this, but what are some of the common challenges and misconceptions that geotechs have when designing and implementing effective working platforms for drill rigs, for cranes, and these other large pieces of equipment? I don't know that they have misconception. I would request that they make it more Educate the owner that when we're recommending a six-foot shaft or a big auger cast, that it's going to be a big rig coming in there and that somebody needs to deal with this subject and allocate 
a budget, maybe even a bid line item to, to cover it because otherwise that's a lump sum cost that has to get bid somewhere in the bid documents. What I've found in trying to do the calculations is we always end up with more gravel than we thought we would have needed. It's almost like a, a defined outcome. If our thoughts were always really good, then rigs wouldn't have been falling over. So if you start trying to put some math to it, then you end up with more frequent sites that need gravel and more thickness of gravel than what you thought might've worked. And that's a challenge because, you know, everybody remembers that other job, Hey, we didn't need to do anything. Now you're saying we need to do something, but you just have to accept that that's going to happen because we want to improve the safety. The other thing in doing the, trying to work through the calculations is you realize that there's some other things going on that make things work better than what our ability to predict is. I think the main thing is apparent surface tension of water. I've tried to run numbers. Anytime I see a rig at a beach, it's just surprising to me that that works and it's got to be surface tension of water. It works. I've even have images. I think they were of excavators sitting in water. So you would think that all the surface tensions dissipated by the water, but it could be that as they're working, they're causing dilation for the short term that makes surface tension work. Those were only hydraulic excavators. I didn't try to calculate that image. I didn't have enough information to do it, but I just have a sense that it'd be hard for those numbers to work out, but it's okay. Look, we're going to need more gravel, but then we're going to reduce the risk everybody on the job site. There's a cost, but there's also logistics aspect, right? Like if you're bringing material on the site that then after you've finished the working, working platform, you've done all your piles or you've done all your ground improvement, and now you're ready to leave the site. Now you have to strip that out or regrade. I mean, it's like potentially, or you just work your grading so that it's, a, there's some beneficial use to it after the fact, like the guys doing a uh, ground improvement. CMCs, they're our friends. They already want to load transfer platform, so put it in first and then get the benefit out of it making the site safer while you're installing the CMCs or ridge inclusion. Sorry, I should have used a more generic. I knew you because of projects you worked on, but also I've seen all that you've done in industry committees such as DFI, ADSC, believe you're doing stuff with PTI, and these are leading industry committees that have led to leading industry documents. So can you talk a little bit more about your involvement in these committees and, and how that has influenced for the development of these guidelines and best practices for working platforms? I've always liked the committees because it brings forward technical challenges and maybe they're challenges I saw and I brought to the committee or they're challenges other people saw. From my memory, the first time I mentioned working platforms was at an ADSC meeting in about 2005. I asked the safety committee if they were frustrated arguing with their GCs about the site conditions when they got there. So it takes a while to get stuff done, but that's just human nature. It takes a while to create change. That was like 20 years ago. It took a while for people to really get on board with at least talking about the subject. It's all kinds of different things. And the other thing is, you know, I'm a nerdy person. And I, so I want people to think of things with 
technical respect and in some ways trying to influence people to think like me in these uh, committee documents. I also like just the banter at going to a committee meeting and talking about something and giving somebody a hard time. It's just kind of fun. I'm going to DFI next week to hang out at a bunch of committee meetings and probably poke some fun. Yep. One of the things that's so interesting to me, or it has been interesting and it still is interesting that, you know, you go to a committee meeting and you're with colleagues, but you're also with the people that you're bidding against, or you're with your competition, so to say. But the reality is that we're working together to make the industry better. So some of the things that may have frustrated, you know, XYZ company, that's a pain point for you as well. And it's like, all right, well, what can we do to make this better? Now, when I think about the working platforms, if I'm the geotechnical consultant and I've recommended this, let's make it a five foot diameter shaft and I've said nothing about a working platform, I've given you specs or bid documents, I've said nothing about a working platform. Now you're bidding the job, GC knows nothing about it, CMO knows nothing about it, owner knows nothing about it. And you say, oh, by the way, I need a working platform. It's going to take this many days or weeks to finish. And it's going to cost this much. And it's going to be, I don't want to pay for that. I don't know what that is, right? If I'm the owner. So there's definitely an education that has to happen. You're working on that. What resources are out there or forthcoming? Or, I mean, where should folks that are listening to this podcast, I want to do the right thing. Where should they be going to do the right thing? So on the DFI website, there's a web page for the task force that's dealing with working platforms. And it's a joint task force between DFI, ADSC, PDCA, and ASCE, I think still participating. And there's just a lot of links on that page to documents that are available. There's already a publication that's a joint between EFFC, that's the European Foundation Contractors Federation, it's a joint document between them and DFI. So that's the first cut. There's an ADSC DFI document that kind of says, here's the site conditions where you really should do some analysis about the working platform, define a cohesion, define a shear strength, and define a total rig weight that say, hey, this is big. You need to do some analysis or you should do some analysis. That's a great website. And then there's an Within DFI, there's another task force that's working with EFFC on a couple research studies. Hopefully, we can post the two links. We'll get those links in the show notes so people can go right there. That's excellent. The main resources, there's a spreadsheet that's called the Federation of Piling Specialist Spreadsheet, FPS Spreadsheet, that uh, you have to email them now to get the newest version. But having worked with it some, I really think that's more of the specialist contractor's realm to figure out what forces is he going to use and what equipment is he going to use to and get all the details pieced together about that equipment. It's going to be really hard for a geotech engineer to dig all that stuff out. The best resource for the information is the owner's manual of the rig. The consultant also doesn't know what rig you're going to bring out there. It's more appropriate, right? Right. But along those lines, the current, one of the research things that uh, EFFC, DFI are doing is trying to put together at least the first cut of pressures you would expect from a given size rig doing a given technology. So it at least gets you in a ballpark of what the pressures are. And they're, they're big pressures. I mean, 10 KSF is not unusual. It's a pressure that's applied on the effective area of the tracks. 
is there something that the consultant needs to be doing? So like the geotech, something I need to, do I need to be doing CPTs in lieu of borings? I mean, there's something we need to do in addition to what we would do for the typical building to get our foundation recommendation. If you're dealing with piles with lateral load, I would encourage you to not just blow through the top 10 feet with probing it with it, like a vacuuming out the top 10 feet for passing utilities. I mean, I get there's a challenge there, but we also need information on parameters, the behavior of the ground right at subgrade. So include in your investigation something about that surface. Or if you can't get to it because of utilities and stuff, then say, hey, this should be investigated when subgrades prepared, utilities are cleared, disconnected. So at least address that something needs to be done to pay attention to the working grade that we're all building from. Just mention the fact that this is a topic that the owner and the contractor should deal with. What do you think is the most challenging aspect, utilizing a working platform effectively? And what's the right way to get over challenges? Sounds like some of it is just talking about it. But let's say we know it's going to happen. We have a kept perfect world. We've accounted for it. Are there still some challenges for getting the right parameters or getting the right analysis? And what are your thoughts there? Our biggest challenge is we're going to end up putting gravel or geotextiles or crane mats on sites that we say, man, it doesn't feel like we had to do this before. We wouldn't have put this much on this site. And like I said before, that's just outcome of improving the safety and the reducing the risk. The second part is for these big rigs, we still using traditional geotechnical bearing capacity things. We end up with gravel thicknesses. If we could come up with four or five foot gravel thicknesses, it just feels like way too much. So we know from experience, that's not what it necessarily takes to even make it safer. So the challenge is dealing with, in my opinion, it's mostly below the tracks, dealing with the geotechnics. And this is all short-term loading type stuff. So you got to think about how is the parent cohesion from surface tension going to make this better and how can I lose it? That's a challenge for our community and is part of what's being researched in the current EFFC DFI studies. Once the working platform is constructed, it then has to be modified if you're drilling through it or drilling alongside it. Like, how does that all work? It has to be maintained, like spoils need to be cleared away. You need to be a little more vigilant about letting the spoils fill up the pores. Well, that affects what happens when it rains in the future. Even if they do, the distresses are already in the gravel. They're already touched. The contacts are already touching. But you need to maintain it, not let the, and keep the water draining away on the site, which are all good, regular site uh, maintenance topics that should be done in the first place anyway, even without the gravel. One thing that um, I think is important for a successful project, and I've definitely seen this when you and I have worked on projects together, just the importance of communication for different team members, right? So geotechnical engineers that are the design professional that's the engineer of record on the consulting side is working with the engineer that's on the construction side, especially contractor. And effective communication is important to have real collaboration between these folks. 
And then you also have this other layer of the folks that are doing the work, the crane operators, the drill rig operators, our friends, your friends, as she said earlier. And you want to do this so that we're safe, so that we're efficient. How much more important is it as it relates to these working platforms, especially considering the working platforms, although you mentioned it 20 years ago, it's still kind of a new thing in this modern geotechnical world. How much more important is that collaboration as in compared to any other project? I think the topic's more important because of the size of things we are doing. We're all going to bigger foundations, bigger equipment. Equipment, they can do it in one pass. It makes the mast really, really tall. As an industry, we're advancing our technology and we've got to realize that that influences how things, what it takes to build them and to, to have the, the safety on the site. What is the future of working platforms and what does this look like when we think about the future for geotechnical engineering design as it relates to working platforms? And then also, are there any emerging technologies or trends that you think are going to have a significant impact in the design and in the usage? I hope that the future is that we do some analysis to understand how much we are applying load to the ground, at shallow ground, and that we in the process of designing and talking about the work platform, we commit to making things, to proving our assumptions of design. So some emerging technologies, there are dynamic cone penetrometers that are being studied. The other one's called a lightweight deflectometer. So these are like almost handheld devices that you use to prove the subgrade. And then uh, plate load tests, even in my presentation that's online, I was against plate load tests because I didn't feel it tested the subgrade. But a guy from uh, the Europe convinced me that the plate load test can still verify the working platform material, right? It's hard to do grain size or it's hard to do direct shear tests when you got uh, two inch aggregates. But if you can do a plate load test and then back out what that means in terms of what your friction angle is, then that can validate that part of the design. So there's a lot of validation opportunities. Just paying attention to the subgrade before you put the gravel on, testing it for its performance and density. So I hope that we, in the short term, that we start paying attention to it and in the long term come up with a good way to analyze it that considers all these things that really make it work. Your load testing, right? I think that there's going to be a lot of opportunities for researchers and folks doing research now. Hopefully we have fast forward and this is something that's taught in the class, something that lives in the textbook, right? Or is the chapter on working platforms, right? I mean, why not? That'd be cool. It's interesting because it's traditional bearing capacity stuff. And it's a lot about the basic capacity equations. A lot of interesting analysis. A big lesson I learned was that if you don't have embedment on a frictional material, your bearing capacity is really poor. So anytime you just have C equals zero at the surface, it's very tough to make the calculations work. You're right. And most of those textbook examples, you have the footings embedded, right? You know, you have that factor. Well, let's go back. This feels like it was a long time ago, but it was only two years ago. You received a Distinguished Service Award from DFI, Deep Foundation Institute, and you were the 2021 
DFI traveling lecture. Congratulations for both of those. Can you share some highlights or key takeaways from your travels and your interactions with professionals and friends throughout the geotechnical community from those experiences? The first thing you mentioned was the award. The award was uh, extremely humbling. My coworkers at Nicholson submitted it and the committee bought it. And it was fun to get it. It was, that's it right there. I say to myself, wow, it's just shocking that I got it. Because uh, there's, you look at the other names and the, other, the names that, that haven't got it yet or that were my colleagues in, in the DFI activities. So that was just a great time in Chicago uh, in 2019. So it was four years ago. And then a year or two later, I was doing a traveling lecture. The best part about the traveling lecture was just meeting people in different areas of the country. And uh, one of the recording that's out there on the DFI website is a talk I did in California. And it was on work platforms. And it was interesting because I'd worked occasionally in California, but not much. But they really uh, seemed to like it. And then they had me do a couple other uh, webinars after that. So it was fun to, to interact with them and be at Lake Tahoe. But just meeting different people in the different locations it was still on the verge of uh, COVID issues, so I did a lot of them by webinar, which was extremely efficient from both a DFI budget standpoint and for the, the audience, too. So that was fun. The most requested presentation was about Mandalay Bay, and that was just a great story to tell. It's a fun story to tell, but there were still some technical lessons to be learned. Before we take our break, Tom, What's a piece of advice you would give to aspiring geotechnical engineers, especially those that are eager to contribute to the field and make a positive impact, and especially those that want to do something related to working platforms to keep folks safer on drill rigs and cranes? What's a piece of advice you'd give to them? The first piece is find something that you really enjoy, almost love in what you're doing. I, I love doing pile load tests, so went out on a lot of them. If you really think about it and you aren't enjoying geotechnical engineering, then maybe consider something else, but you really should find something you enjoy. The second thing is to get involved with the industry committees. You interact with people who are potentially competitors, but a lot of the guys, a lot of the people who would be either, in my case, they were clients, the engineering clients, or if you're an engineer, you meet the contractors and realize that maybe we're not a, just a bunch of cash-hungry people. So get involved with the committees, and then once you're involved with them, and once you're going to association things, go up and talk to people. Talk to the old guys and find out what stories we have or what lesson we learned. We have information to share. We're going to come back in just a minute and close this one out with Tom in our Career Factor Safety End segment. Stick around. All right, welcome back. It's time for our career factor safety end segment. In geotechnical engineering, just like many disciplines of engineering, it's important to incorporate a factor of safety into your design. But what about incorporating a factor of safety into your actual career? Today, of course, we're speaking with Tom Richards of Nicholson Construction Company. Tom, you've 
had a very successful career. And when you look back in your career, what's something that you've implemented in your career to give yourself, let's call it a factor of safety in your career? I feel like some of this was my answer to the last question, but I think to reiterate, first, I did something I really enjoyed. You got to enjoy what you're doing or it just gets stale and you're just going through the motions. And the second thing is with the committee stuff, it leads to opportunities to uh, speak at conferences, to review documents with other people and network with other people. And all that helps build your credibility and your relationships. I guess I'm not saying be safe. I'm saying go ahead out there and, and try things and, and meet people. Don't be afraid to talk to them. And all those things, you just keep making the right decisions about enjoying work, giving back to the industry, and it just keeps building and building what ends up being a career. Tom, thank you so much for coming on and for sharing all the great insights. You shared some information and advice that I know is going to be helpful for our listeners and those that are watching. Somebody wants to find you, what's the best way for them to find you? In your social media, you have an email address you want to share. We're going to have in the show notes some of those links that you have, but what's the best way for people to find Tom? I'm old enough that I still like email the best, but I look at LinkedIn a fair amount. I don't make many posts, but if you want to message me on LinkedIn, if you want to send me a bunch of stuff, I'm going to ask you to switch to email anyway. Tom.Richards at NicholsonConstruction.com. Tom, this was fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed our episode today. We would love to hear your feedback, comments, and or questions. Please feel free to go to geotechnicalengineeringpodcast.com where you'll find a summary of the key points discussed in today's episode, that being episode number 89 as well as links to any of the resources, websites, or books mentioned during this episode. Until next time, we wish you the very best in all of your geotechnical engineering endeavors. Peace. Thank you for listening. And don't forget to download the latest version of our AE Industry Trends Report to get answers to the questions that you want to ask your staff, but you may be afraid to do so. How long will the great resignation last? How long should you allow employees to work remotely? And how are successful firms using data to grow sustainably for the long term? You can learn the answers to these questions and more by downloading the report at engineeringmanagementinstitute.org.